All right, now, breathe deep, hold it in for 10 seconds, and then let it out slowly. <sighs> Praise God for good food, amen? Amen, I'm going to tell you. All right, well, here we go. Open up your Bibles, if you would, please. <clears throat> and we're going back to the gospel as recorded by Mark. The gospel according to Mark, if you would, please. <clears throat> As we begin this next chapter, now we just finished up chapter 11 last week, by God's grace, and so as we begin this next chapter in our study, our text starts out with the following sentence. Now I'm gonna, not going to read the whole thing yet, but it starts out with this following sentence. It says, and he, that is Jesus, and he began to speak unto them by parables. Now we'll read that full portion of our text here in just a moment, but first, I think it is rather important, and as a matter of fact, I believe it is of paramount importance to understand the setting or the context in which this parable was related. Why is context so important? Great question. Context is important because if I said, <clears throat> I love when the snow is piled high and there's a fire in the big stone fireplace when you see it in some of those cozy family movies on TV. But if all you heard me say or if all you took notice of me saying was, I love when the snow is piled high, you might have a different thought process about me than if you'd heard the whole thing, right? Because there are some that don't like snow piled high. And I will tell you, that the reality of snow being piled high everywhere is much different than that wonderful cozy depiction on TV. Because it's all fake snow anyway. Anyway, I'm just kidding. It is very much like taking Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 as a standalone declaration. Well, wait, I thought we were talking about cozy fires. No, but what does Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 say? The Bible says here, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Thou art Peter, which, by the way, if you didn't know, the name Peter means a small rock. Okay? So just for reference there, the Bible says, Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you take that verse as a standalone declaration, by itself, this verse might indicate that the church as we know it is built upon the foundation of the rock, Peter, who does, no, rather, and, and that Peter is the one who has supremacy over who does or does not spend eternity in that place called hell. That is not what that verse says. Though Peter indeed would turn out to be a great soul-winning apostle and preacher, for he was rock solid in his faith eventually. Jesus' statement that when he said, upon this rock I will build my church, refers back to the it of verse 17, just before it, when Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Okay, so what is the it that he's referring to? Well, the it 
is from the verse prior to that. The it is when Simon Peter declared after Jesus asked, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock upon which the church is built. That Jesus is the Christ. But verse 18, taken out of context, leads to a very different and wrong understanding of the reason for the church. So, in our study today, the setting or the context is that Jesus here is in the temple in Jerusalem where the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have confronted him to challenge his authority and the source of his authority for having purged the temple of the merchants and the money changers. As we saw last week in our study, Jesus rightly established his jurisdiction in the temple, both in Jerusalem and in the temple that is each one of us. As God has declared that we are bought with a price, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus has his jurisdiction. Let's read then our text for today. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse number 12. 12 verses today, and the Bible here says, And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, and set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and he let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant, that he might receive from the husbandmen the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12 says, And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. So from this passage today, I find three brief points that we're going to talk about that we'll explore and we'll study a little bit. The, the three points are the vineyard, the villainy, and the verity. That's an odd word. We'll find out what that means in just a moment. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we look to this message today, Lord, once again, I'm faced with the reality that there is no way that I can bring justice to your word. And so, Father, I'm simply asking that, God, your Holy Spirit would take control 
Father, that your Holy Spirit would fill not only me, but Father, fill each and every one that hears your word today. And Lord God, may you give us the understanding that each one of us individually needs. For Father, your word speaks to us individually. So God, I'd ask that your Holy Spirit would have complete sway in this hour, and that Lord, your will is accomplished, and Lord, we would leave here today challenged and changed for the better, drawn closer to you, and more effective in our witness and in our service to you. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the vineyard. Now, having read the text, I'm sure that we're all familiar with this account and, and were already. But perhaps we can be reminded just what is a parable and why use a parable. Now, you're, you're talking basic Christianity 101. What is a parable? Uh, well, that's okay because sometimes we need to go back and remember just exactly some of these basic truths as our foundation. So by definition, a parable is an allegorical relation or representation of something in real life or nature from which is drawn a moral truth to be used for instruction. Well, that's a big fancy definition of the word parable. And you can look that up in Webster's 1828. I'm going to plug that dictionary for the rest of my life. Parable. It's a representation of something real in life or nature from which is drawn a moral truth to be used for instruction. So why then use parables? Wouldn't it be simpler just to speak the truth outright? If you're going to use some representation to tell a story, why not just speak the truth? Well... Indeed, it may be easier and simpler to speak the truth outright. The trouble with that, in certain contexts, and certainly in the kind of context in which Jesus is speaking here, is that those to whom the truth is aptly applied are more likely to rebuff what is said and accuse the speaker of attacking and trying to shame the intended recipient. Well, you're just attacking me with those hurtful things. That's hate speech. There's a popular term these days, I guess. Whereas by speaking a parable, those who aren't affected directly or involved in the subject of the parable can simply take the account and use it as Maybe a guiding reference for when some similar circumstance arises. Oh, that was a great, oh, that, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I can see where he, what he's talking about there, yeah. Those who are directly involved, they are, through the parable, inherently driven to draw their own exhortation so that they are accountable because of what has been spoken but they cannot cry foul as if they were being directly accused. They have no one to blame but themselves. What someone does with that realization of accountability, so when there's a parable, in other words, if somebody's telling a story about you, but they leave out names to protect the innocent and or the accused, and they're telling a story about you to somebody else, and you overhear it, and you say, that's talking about me. That's the reality of the parable. And it causes us to draw our own exhortations that, oh, when we see it depicted about perhaps someone else, but it really is a reflection of us, 
yikes, I didn't realize it looked like that. You see, they have no one to blame but themselves. What, what we do with that realization of accountability now will be brought to bear when we all stand, as Pastor mentioned this morning, to give account either at the great white throne of judgment or at the beam of seat of accountability for believers. For we will all give account. So, all right, well then what of the vineyard here in verse number one? First, I'm going to ask, we're all familiar with this passage and we can recognize as we read through that, that this is likely talking about the whole situation with how God has created the world and he's, he's given some priests and some prophets and then eventually, you know, those are all killed or, or, torn, or torn apart or beaten or whatever and then he sends his son, Christ, and we can see that picture. Well, so what of the vineyard? What does that mean for us? Well, let me ask you this. Why would a man plant a vineyard? Why would a man plant a vineyard? Is it not to produce good fruit for its many uses? Remember the context. Jesus is speaking here to the Jewish spiritual leadership in the temple. Now, we know that the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. In fact, we can read it in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 1 says, These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel. And then in verse, uh, chapter 7 and verse 6, Moses said, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The nation of Israel was chosen by God to represent him. So, what does all this have to do to tie it all together? Well, a man plants a vineyard to produce good fruit for its many, many uses. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15 also tells us that God desired that he might seek a godly seed. You see, God desired for holiness and godliness to be reproduced on earth, or as you might say, to bear fruit like the vineyard. For its many uses. Now notice also in verse number one, if you're looking at it at the word at the at your Bible, a certain man planted a vineyard. So notice that word planted. As opposed to other passages of scripture that use the term sowing seed. Well, why bring that up? I don't know if you've ever been in a vineyard. I I don't generally frequent vineyards, but I've driven by them, I've seen them. I've seen information about them. A vineyard requires very specific care in the way the field is cleared, in the way that it's prepared before the specific planting can take place because care must be taken to make sure there's room to allow for the harvest of the fruit to take place without uprooting the vines. If we're going to get fruit out of the vineyard, you don't want to have just a massive field completely covered and you'd never be able to get to the middle of it to get the good fruit from there. You see, once a vineyard is planted, it's expected that the same vines will bear fruit year after year after year without having to replant. It has continual life with seasons of fruit bearing and seasons of growth and pruning. Now other crops 
something like, I don't know, corn or wheat or beans or flax or whatever might be out there. Other crops are sown. Yes, now these days we have great big giant planters and they plant them, but in the, in the context here, the, the other crops were sown. You know what that means, right? It's just thrown everywhere. Seed is just sown out there. We remember the account of the sower sowing seed and some fell on stony ground, some fell on good ground, All, right? That's the idea. That's the difference here. Other crops are sown and then they grow and then what happens in the harvest? The whole plant dies and everything is ripped right out of the ground and it has to be re-sown again the next year. It's different for a vineyard expecting to produce fruit. With a vineyard, great care is taken to make provision for its ongoing needs, which is exactly what is stated in verse 1. Once again, verse 1 says, A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and then let it out to the husband, and so forth. Now the hedge, what is the hedge for? The hedge is for separation. The hedge is for protection of the crop of good fruit. What is the place for the wine fat? Well, that's provision to handle the unusable and unwanted parts that come about in natural growth. The tower, what is the tower for? The Bible says that he built a tower. Well, that's for a watchman. To continually overlook and watch for the dangers that might approach, that might cause damage to the vines or to the fruit. Isn't that exactly what God has done for his people? Levitical law was given. That was to serve as a means of separation and protection from the evils of the rest of the world. The altar of sacrifice served as a means of purging and atoning for the undesired parts, the sins, and the trespasses. And the tower, what was that? Oh, that was the priests and the prophets to teach and to warn, to watch for the evil dangers coming that would defile God's chosen people. You see the parallels. Okay, so that's about the vineyard. Brings us to the second point, the villainy. Oh boy. You know what a villain is, right? Hmm. Everybody knows what the villain is. That's the bad guy. I believe the language of the parable here in our text is pretty clear. Let's read once again verses 2 through 8. At the season, this Lord of the vineyard, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husband of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also at last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. These very same husbandmen, the ones who were supposed to be looking out for the production of good fruit, the ones that were supposed to be overseeing the vines to produce fruit for the Lord of the vineyard, turned into villains, turned into greedy, self-serving people. 
even a cursory view, if we were to look at the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, shows how many of the priests and the prophets of God did all they could to change the course of the corruption that had worked its way into Israel through the ups and downs of the people disobeying the word of the Lord, in joining together with the intermarrying of these other nations, which God had forbidden. Then there were some, well, there were some good kings, and then there were many evil kings, despite the provision of God through his prophets of trying to restore the nation back to God. The evil kings just took it so far, so much farther down the road. But so many of these men and women who served the Lord faithfully were stoned, they were tortured, they were killed, beaten to death, sawn asunder. And as Jesus continued the parable here, he foretells the very evil that would shortly come up against himself. He said the Lord even sent his own son. And he said, he's the heir. Let's kill him. And we'll take whatever it belongs to him. So he then concludes the parable with the outcome of what the husbandman, remember these are the ones who had the charge of the care and the well-being of the vineyard. Or put another way, those that were to oversee the spiritual welfare of God's people through the right and proper teaching of the word of God had brought upon themselves. What did they bring? Well, they brought the loss of the good favor of God. And by their own rejection of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, they would find no recourse to restore their relationship with God. And even though they may think that they are destroying the opposition to their self-serving, comfortable way of life, verse 10 says, what does verse 10 say? And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner? Now, by application, what does that mean? What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, what that has to do, by application, the cornerstone, if you've ever done any kind of construction or seen it, the cornerstone is the primary anchor stone that once it is put in place, it is the anchor, it is the point from which every other part of the building is aligned and placed and squared up to. The cornerstone. In his last statement... Then Jesus says that there is no refuting this because this was the Lord's doing. Now, verse 10, once again, he said, And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. That's Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, the well-beloved son, the last one whom the Lord sent to rectify the husbandman. And then he goes on in verse 11 and he said, this was the Lord's doing, not the son, not the husbandman, not the priest, not the prophets, not the scribes, not the elders, not anyone else. This was the Lord's doing. And he said, it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, what is Jesus saying here? He said, why are you so surprised at this? Why are you so surprised that God has turned his face against you? Scribes and elders and chief priests that can't seem to figure it out? He said, you ought not to be surprised. God gave you every opportunity 
to repair your place and your relationship with him. And he said you refused him time and time and time again. So there's really no reason to be surprised or upset when comes time to give an account and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean? They know exactly what they mean. God, at that point, is simply honoring their choice. They chose to reject. And so what does it all mean? It brings us to our last point, the verity. What is the verity? Well, perhaps it's a word that is unfamiliar to you, but let me help you out. The verity is defined as truth. Wait, wait, what? Yeah. Verity is simply truth. It is a true assertion. It is a moral truth. So verse 12 of our text then, verse 12, and they, that's the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they sought to lay a hold on him, but, he, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. You see, they knew the truth of the parable. They knew that what Jesus was speaking was a reflection of what they themselves had done. Verse 12 is the substantiation, if you will, or the proof that Jesus was not just making up a cute story for story time with Jesus. No. Notice also, if you would, that even after they acknowledged that this analogy was a direct reflection of their own hearts and, and their lives, even after they recognized and acknowledged that, Notice that they were in the very presence of the one that could and would forgive them and restore them if they would but ask. But what does the record show? The end of verse 12 says, and they left him and went their way. Well, that's a great review of that parable. But what's the burning question? What does it have to do with this? Isn't that the burning question as always? Is this truthful representation of reality somehow relevant to me today? Where do I fit? How does this apply to me? Well, indeed, Jesus here was specifically speaking to and about these chief priests, the scribes and the elders in the day. And yet the truth of the matter is God has preserved this living word and this account and this parable for me and for you to read and to understand today. He has preserved this living word for me and you and has given to us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to lead us into and to guide us into all truth and understanding. The verity of this parable, the truth of this representation of realities of life is that in our individual spiritual lives, there are times, I will be the first to say guilty, there are times when we seek our own gain from the blessings that God has let out to us as the husbandman as the overseers, as the caretakers of God's creation, as his stewards. When the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Holy Spirit serves as the watchman, 
when the Holy Spirit watchman begins to correct or to convict us about a conduct or about a thought process that we've had, about a behavior, about the way we have responded to someone, are we like those who have cast stones and sent him away shamefully? Leave me alone, God. I'm okay with this. Those times when we're seeking our own gain. I know, God, you'll understand. I'll come back tomorrow and I'll get it all straightened out. But today, leave me alone. i got to do what i got to do. It's casting stones. That's handling him shamefully, like the Bible has said. Are we like these husbandmen who are just looking for our own gain and dealing with him shamefully? Or will we take the exhortation that the Holy Spirit brings into our hearts? Will we take the exhortation that God has preserved for us, the reflection of what we might be like from time to time, will we take that and square ourselves back to the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, which is always right and is always true? Will we consciously work to correct what we've been doing? Will we take the word of God and take it back and ask, We're in the presence of the one who can and will forgive and will set us right. At some point, just as God did in this parable, the opportunity to get into or to get back into a truly right relationship will be taken away. Only God knows when that time is for each one of us individually. Only God knows when that time is for this world corporately. But the opportunity to get right will at some point be taken away. So why would we continue in the plague of the sinfulness and of the transgression or of the, I've got this, don't worry about it, God, I'll come back tomorrow. Why would we, like Pharaoh said, give me one more night with the plague? Why not just take care of it? When God brings the conviction, handle it right then and there. Get back into the relationship with God. Jesus addressed this kind of thought process of waiting for a better time as well when he stated in Matthew chapter 23, this was Matthew's account of when Jesus came into Jerusalem and he looked around and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoned them which are sent unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Christian, it's time for you and me to take that verse and where it says Jerusalem, Jerusalem, add our names right there. Oh, child of God, how often would God have restored us, and we would not. Let's not become a modern parable of the vineyard and of the husbandman. Let Jesus help us as we, as he, I should say, let let Jesus help us as he works through us, through the Holy Spirit and works in us to correct us. Pastor, would you close us, please? Not much to add to that, amen?
other than the fact that it's amazing when we come to the Word of God, we either accept it or we reject it. And God looks at our choices and He knows our heart. And He knows why we make this white. Young people, sometimes even Christians, don't want to read the Bible, don't want to pray, don't want to go to church. And God knows. But there comes a time when He says, Enough is enough. I've heard, especially from the uh, more southern preachers, about sending, the, sending away the day of grace. For the unsaved, there comes a point in time that God, I called and I've called and I've called. You have responded the same way. No, no, and no. You got your wish. For the child of God who refuses to live his or her life for the Lord, he pleads and he pleads. He challenges us. He encourages us. And we continue to reject him. There comes a time he says, I'm not talking to you anymore. You've made your choice. You've made your decision. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be together this afternoon. We thank you for the message that we've heard. To be reminded that, Lord, we all have a responsibility to both respond and, Lord, to accept. But we may not always like, according to the flesh, the things that you require of us. But, Lord, in the long run, a yielded soul, a yielded body, a yielded spirit in the long run is always the best and the wisest way to tell you, to go, the route to take. So Lord, you guide, you direct as we go forward until you come and gather us together. They will take seriously the parables and the lessons that are learned in other portions of scriptures that are meant to encourage us and challenge us to change, to become what you want us to be. And Lord, give us traveling mercies as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.